Scripture lesson today comes from the good news, according to St. Luke, uh, chapter 17. Uh, This is not a parable, but an actual story uh, that is recorded about Jesus' life and how he sees and heals and helps others. Let's share in God's good word together. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Forgive us, Lord, for our waiting room addiction. Addicted. Always thinking we're in a waiting room. Counting down the days till we enter real life. When real life is happening right now. And you are the one waiting for us to give you thanks for the miracle of now. Wake us up out of our waiting room addiction. I'm 25 days thankful for our baby's laughter. I'm 15 days thankful that I am is enough and cure us with thanksgiving. I'm three months thankful for where I'm living right now. I'm 45 days thankful for my life now. Show us how we have room in our lives to give you thanks right now. I'm three weeks thankful that I have a job to provide for my family. I'm one day thankful for the gift of now. In everything, give thanks. And as the children said, even if you don't like it. (laughs) Even if you don't like it. What are you thankful for right now? This very moment, what are you thankful for right now? What comes to mind? What are you thankful for this very moment? Right now. What are you thankful for? It changes everything. And thankfulness comes easier or harder depending on how much we practice, like anything else. Thankfulness can come easy or it can come hard. Maybe you're still in the waiting room. Does your life look like the waiting room? I'll be happy when? I had somebody tell me this week, I'll be happy when I have money in the bank for six months and a man who'll take care of me. Real, real conversation. I've had people say, I'll be happy when I get pregnant. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I graduate high school. I'll be happy when I graduate college. I'll be happy when I get through my master's program. I'll be happy when I have a good paying job. I'll be happy when I get a different job. I'll be happy when my boss gets fired. I'll be happy if my boss fires me. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy if our team uh, wins next Saturday. Y'all don't miss church next Saturday because of Bedlam. That's dumb. Right? Just come on anyway. Win or lose. Whoever it is. I, yeah, we got represented as I know. All over. Right? I'll be happy when. So are you a I'll be happy when or I am happy now and this is why. I am thankful now. Different way of living. And it takes practice. So are you a person who wakes up in the morning and says, good morning, Lord? Or are you a person that wakes up and says, good, Lord, it's morning? Which, which is it? Right? It can be either way. Same morning. Right? When you get to breakfast... I mean, it's all about thankfulness and and practice. Do you say, Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for this cup of coffee that will wake me up so I can read my devotional. Thank you, Lord, uh, for my family. Thank you for my dog that's at the end of the bed. I never thank 
God for that. But he does sit there at the end of the bed. Um, thank you, God. And, and then you go, maybe you go for a walk or, or maybe you're heading into your work and you say, God, thank you for meaningful employment. God, thank you for my coworkers uh, that love me and help me and support me. God, thank you for a place where I can have a meaningful work and a and good uh, wage. Lord, thank you for health insurance. Lord, thank you. You go to lunch and you thank God for the people who made your lunch uh, or maybe you brought your lunch. Uh, you, you give God thanks and, you, and you, you pray and you say, God, thank you for this meal. Thank you for those hands that prepared it. Thank you for those that you're going to provide for that do not have a meal today. Thank you for your provision over all the world. You, you come back in the afternoon and, and maybe you, it's five o'clock. Do you, do you thank God at five o'clock? Many of you do. You don't know. You're like, thank God it's five o'clock. Yes, thank God it is five o'clock and you've had a good, wonderful, meaningful day of work. And you go and then you have dinner and, and do you gather and, and take a moment and stop and remember that the meal that you're about to have is a gift. And then that evening before your head hits the pillow, do you stop and think about the things that you're grateful for, thankful for? It's proven, by the way, that if you'll stop and take even just five minutes or three minutes and write down five or ten things that you're grateful for, you'll sleep better. You'll be healthier. You'll be happier. So the thing is, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at taking the next step in our faith, taking the next step with Christ. But the first step is gratitude. Say that with me. The first step is gratitude. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And we're going to look at this thing called gratitude. And, and, and I love the research around this. There's tons of it. There's social science research by Brene Brown. There's medical research. Uh, there's happiness research by Martin Seligman. There's all kinds of research over tens of... 20, 30, 40, 50 years of research, and I love it. I just absolutely love it. Did you know that thankfulness has been associated with higher grades and less depression in teens? Teenagers, listen up. Just by being thankful, by saying thank you, you'll make higher grades. As you pray before exams, if you understand that your, your teachers are there to help you. If, imagine this, that you were a teenager, you go to a public high school or even a private high school, and you think about this, that there are thousands of people in your community paying that you can go to school people paying property tax that don't have any children their children aren't in school but they pay for you to go anyway right an incredible gift not one of us who's ever been through even a high school education could afford probably even one year of what it would cost to build the buildings have the science have the you know the microscopes or pay a teacher's salary certainly not seven or eight teacher salaries in a year you imagine how expensive education would be if you had to pay for it on your own no one could afford it no one. Way too expensive. So thankfulness in these arenas lead to higher grades, less depression among teens. This is where it gets really fun for me. I don't know how this is true, uh, but research has shown that if they pull your blood, right, people who report gratitude in their life actually have less inflammation in their body. Imagine that. They just pull you like, hey, you're pretty thankful. How do you know? Not much inflammation in you, right? Other, others of us really struggle, you know, getting out of bed. Just basic stuff. No kidding. Grateful people sleep better and report fewer aches and pains. Thankful people have lower blood pressure. Thankful people have less gastro issues. Just by being thankful. By saying thank you. So when you're exiting and someone holds the door for you, what might you say? Thank you. I'm amazed. It's so great. So often, you know, I'll open the door for somebody. That's just how I was raised. That's just what I do. I don't even think about it. It's not even something I think about. I just do it. And more often than not, you know what happens? They hold the next one for me. And what do I say? Thank you. It's great. 
Grateful people sleep better, have fewer aches and pains. Now, this is where it gets tricky, though, because a lot of folks will flip the actual reality. And that is we think that when this happens, then I'll be thankful or then I'll be happy. But it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. You see, Father David Steindl Rass says it like this, and he's exactly right, proven. In daily life, we must see that it is not happiness that makes us grateful. Not at all. But gratefulness that makes us happy. It's gratefulness that makes us happy. Because all the circumstances of life come and go and change, and, and we're miserable if we live day to day by circumstance. Some of you have met people like this. Have you ever met somebody who you never know what kind of mood they're in day to day? Like one day it's great, the next day it's terrible, right? It's not about that. It's not about how you feel. It's not about your mood. It's not about the circumstances of the day. It's about are we able to give God thanks in all things. When that happens, when we find contentment, we find peace. We find love. We find joy. Joy comes after the thankfulness. But there's a problem in West Edmond, Deer Creek area, northwest Oklahoma City. Maybe you know it. It's called comparison. That will suck the joy right out of you. You know that you ever have this day where you're feeling so great and, and everything's wonderful and then you find out that your coworker makes $5,000 more than you do? Hey, that's not right. Maybe you're in your neighborhood and you feel great about everything and then you realize that your neighbor drives up in a brand new car or maybe they got the, their house repainted or they did something cool and you're like, oh, I wish I could do that. Now, you know the answer to this next one. We all need a little what? More. Don't we? We all need a little more. That is the temptation, death cycle of joy. The temptation for a little more. Just a little more. There's actually Wall Street Journal and Forbes articles uh, that say why your rich neighbor is making you miserable. Absolutely true. This is the American way, isn't it? You do well. You make some money, you, you make a job, you get a better job, you make a little more money, and then you change what? Houses. You move up into the next neighborhood and to where you can just barely afford it, and you're on the low end of the neighborhood, and you are what? Miserable. Because everybody else is doing better than you are. You'd have been better to stay back at your old house and be better than the other ones. Social science has proved this to be true. People who are the most miserable are on the low end of their neighborhood. People who are happiest are on the higher end of their neighborhood and are, are ready and generous and ready to share. So let's, let's go back. Let's say that you have a $500,000 house and you could actually, if you want to be happy, like you could be miserable in a $500,000 house. There's lots of studies about that as well. It's called uh, affluenza and um, it's a problem. It's real. And so you, you can actually downsize from that into say a $200,000 house. And then when it's time to go out to dinner, you can invite your neighbor and pay for it with the $300,000 cash you got in your pocket. Can't you? You feel great about it. You want to go to dinner? I'll buy. However, if you've ever been in this situation like I have, and you go to a restaurant that you can't pay the bill, you are sweating it. And you're begging, hoping God that the other guy picks it up, because otherwise you are broke. And it feels terrible in comparison. And it makes your guts get in knots. I don't know if you've ever done that. You go to one of those restaurants where you, there's no prices on it, and all you got is cash, and you don't know if you've got enough. Like, I'll have the water. And they come out with a $6 bottle of Voss. You're like, that's not what I was thinking. I'm $6 in the hole. I'm a, it's easy for me. I'm a pastor. I'm like, I'm fasting. That's all I got at that point. Right? I was like, 
That's not true, but that's what I got. Right? Like, ah. All right, we all need a little, say it with me, more. And that will suck the joy right out of your life. It will. Now, the problem with comparison is this, and I know this firsthand. Now, I'm going to run a little experiment. How many of you all know what this is? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Yep, look at the young people. They have no idea. Like, I don't know what that is. What is that thing? And, and it, it gets even worse. If you take out the middle part, the other part just looks like a bedpan. Like, I don't know what that is. This is an ice tray, friends, for all of you under 15. This is an ice tray. This is how we old people made ice. And when I went to my grandmother Dots or my grandmother Ann's, this is what there were. There were lots of them. And if all the family came over, it was my job to fill, you know, the, the glasses with ice. And so I'd go in there and I'd get them out. And, oh, they were cold because they're stainless steel. And I'd get them out. And then you'd crack them open and the ice would go everywhere and all the pieces. And you'd have to clean that up. And, and you'd do it for all these people. And sometimes I'd wash my hands. And sometimes, and if I remembered, my grandma said, did you wash your hands? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, you never knew which glass you were getting. So, so you'd do this, right? That's an ice maker. And I can remember as a little boy praying, oh, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Right? If only, you know, we had the plastic ones. Poop, poop, poop. Some of you know those. You know, there's got to be a better way than this. And you know what? There is. Some of you, like me, have moved up in the world. A few years ago, Chantel and I got a refrigerator with water and ice in the door. I'm happy now, aren't I? Some of you all have the same refrigerator I do. Now, only God can work this miracle. There is a hole at the top where the ice spits out. And then you can take... A, a cup of equal or greater size and hold it exactly underneath that hole and only God can make the ice jump between the two and onto the floor. How does that happen? That happens to me every time. And so now, because it, like, the flap doesn't really hold anymore and it kind of like frosts up into it, it doesn't really work right and it like goes, makes these terrible noises or spits it all over the kitchen. So now you know what I do? I open the door and I just reach in with my hand. And sometimes I watch my hands. Few of you are coming over to my house for dinner, aren't you? Yeah. You never know. You never know what glass you're going to get. But it's not that. Now, what's my problem? It's comparison, right? Now, now I, I got what I prayed for. I got exactly this. I got the whole thing. But I'm still not happy. I hate my ice maker. Those of you who have really cool refrigerators that don't do that to you, I hate you too. Now, I don't. But, you know, you, get, you feel that like, oh, you got a nicer fridge than me. So here's why this might be. This may be why those who have more actually give less by percentage. It's true, statistically true. Uh, This was uh, proven a few years ago. Uh, In America, we're just talking about American Christians, uh, those who made $50,000 on average give about 6%. Um, And they're like, wow, you know, that's really something. But imagine if you actually prayed to God to get a better job, to have a better income, and to move up, you would give more, right? I mean, I hear this all the time. Oh, if I, if I had more, I'd give more. If I, if, if I was doing better, then I could afford to. Well, what if you made four times that amount of money? I mean, you have more than enough, right? No, you actually give less. They gave 4% when they went to $200,000 a year. Well, that's a lot of money. Well, sure it is. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bemoaning that. But you would think... With $150,000 extra cash, you wouldn't need to give less. But you do. Why? Because you went to the new neighborhood. Everybody else is driving a little nicer car, a little nicer house. Now the things that you compare yourself with are more expensive. And you actually feel more poor. 
So an article I read last week said this, absolutely true. Psychological and social science research supports that living amid the wealthy, even when you are upper middle class, is pretty bad for your mental health. It makes you depressed because everybody you run with has a little more than you do and it makes you miserable. It just does. It makes us miserable. So I'm left with this question. Could we be the richest people on earth who still feel poor? Is that possible? Now, I know there's some folks moved up here from South Lake or Plano or outside of Houston in the woodlands, and you're like, oh, this ain't nothing. But still, could we be the richest people on earth who still feel poor? I think it's possible. And this is why. If you take um, this zip code around the church, 73012, the average household income for people within roughly 5, 10 miles of, of Acts 2, it's 114815 That's everybody working. Mom, dad, oldest son, whatever. That's the average, right? And there are a couple people that, you know, live close to here that blow that up because they're making millions. But still, on average, this is where it comes out to be in this zip code. Not making this up. You can go look at it, right? Now, if you, how do you compare that with the rest of Edmund? It looks pretty much the same. So, so just because you're in 013 or someplace else, it doesn't change much, friends, Right? Now, how do we compare outside the bubble of Edmund? What if we actually looked at the world? Well, you can go to globalrichlist.com. I do this every year. I know some of you hate it, but here it is. You put in the number of the average right here, and you click on that. You show your results, and it tells you, um, of these 100 people, you are top 1%. No, no, no. You're not top 1%. You're top 0.07%, which means you are richer than 999 three percent of the people around you right you make almost sixty dollars an hour as a family now compared to somebody uh, in indonesia they would have to work 154 years a lifetime and a half or two lifetimes to get what you make in an hour in an hour you, you understand um no that's in a year i'm sorry take them 154 years to make what you make in a year that's the difference. Or uh, in Zimbabwe, right? If you want a can of Coke, um, what we make here, it takes you 36 seconds. Uh, for somebody in Zimbabwe, it takes them an hour of work to buy a can of Coke. We won't wait that long. But, you know, you, you can. You can go to Global Rich List. Uh, on what uh, your monthly income is, your monthly income, not your total income, your monthly income could pay for 501 doctors in Kyrgyzstan. Are you feeling a little richer yet? Maybe. So, let, let's do some comparisons. Roughly $60 an hour for folks that live around here versus $0.08 cents in Ghana. $0.08. Cents. Same hour. Right? This is the reality of our world. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's really not by much of what we've done. It's really not. It has a lot to do with where we were born. If you want to look at differences in, in economic levels around the world, it's largely about where you were born, where your parents chose to have you. Now, I know what some of you are saying. You're like, look, Mark, I'm nowhere close to $114,000. You're wearing me out. This doesn't apply to me at all. Hold on. Hold on. A family of five in America at the poverty line, right? Roughly $28,000 a year. I think it's $28,780, right? You're still the top 1% in the world on poverty. If you get food stamps, WIC, social assistance, all the help in America, right? You're still top 1.37% in the global world. 
economy. There's nobody within the sound of my voice that's not in the top 1% in our church. Globally, all of us, the richest people on earth. But if we're not careful, we feel what? Poor. Poor. I mean, maybe Noah remembers this. He's my youngest. Uh, our kids went to Cheyenne just down the road. Um, great school. We loved it. Loved our time there. But one of the things happened before we got into these buildings. Um, we were worshiping there. And one Sunday, um, we actually got somebody hit us in the parking lot. They hit the preacher, uh, his car, in the parking lot. No note. They just let it might be one of you. So feel bad about it. So it scraped up our car. And it was the time when we were paying off the first building. And we didn't have any money to spare. We couldn't even fix it. We couldn't even paint it. And so we were driving in our old Gallant with the back all jacked up and with big old scratches all over it. And we pull up and the boys are in the back seat like, because right next to us is a brand new Escalade with spinners and the, and the stairs came out. And out came these little princes, stepped down, you know, you know, their, their servants came out and laid out the carpet. No, that's not true. It's not true. But that's what it felt like. And so my kids felt what? Poor. Were they? Are they? No. They're in college now. Now they're poor. All right? Now they know what poor is. They didn't know then. All right? So here, here's what Jesus does. The story is this. Jesus sees 10 people with leprosy. This was incurable at the time. Uh, it was a death sentence. And he sees them. And, and I wonder about us, if we even see the realities around us. Most people chose not to see the lepers. Jesus did. And those with leprous diseases were required to wear disheveled clothes so that you knew who they were. They were not allowed to fix their hair so you knew who they were. They had to live outside the camp or outside the town so you wouldn't uh, die by being uh, in relationship with them. And they would have to call out unclean when anyone came by. Now, here was the law. If anyone within 100 paces came by, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that the other person would be infected. So paces, one, two, three. Imagine that, four, five, six, all the way up to 100. So if anybody came within 100 paces of you, you had to cover your upper lip and yell out, unclean, unclean. This is who Jesus sees. And they yell out to him. Unfazed, he keeps coming. They yell, unclean, unclean, and he keeps coming to them. When everybody else was running away from them, Jesus is running towards them because that's what he did he came to save not to judge not to condemn but to heal and to save so the story goes like this jesus is moving from his hometown here in nazareth right here along this border between galilee and samaria probably on his way down to jerusalem because this is the riverbank this is all mountainous and you're not supposed to go through samaria anyway why not because you might know if you did uh, old testament bible study with us here in disciple this area known as samaria happened because the northern kingdom known as Israel, in 722, was taken over by a group out here off the map called Assyria. Assyrians came in, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, and pulled them back into Assyria. At that time, God said, in order to keep yourselves as a holy people, a chosen people, do not intermarry, because you don't want to lose your identity. Some did, some didn't. The Jews who had children in Assyria, their children were known as what? Samaritans. Those families then moved back into town, took this region known as Samaria. Now you have to understand that a Samaritan child represented disobedience, represented unfaithfulness, represented 
something that was against God's law. So if you were Jewish, you weren't to have anything to do with them. You couldn't even let their shadow pass by you or on you. Everything about them was something the Jews were supposed to stay away from. And this is who Jesus goes right to, right along that border. They weren't supposed to do that. So the scripture says this. It happened that as he made his way toward Jerusalem, he crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee, which you saw. As he entered a village, ten men, all lepers, they met him. And they kept their distance. They raised their voices, calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Perhaps this was their way of saying unclean, unclean. Or perhaps it was after saying unclean, he keeps coming to them. And they're like, wow, this is different. This is Jesus. He's the Master. Have mercy on us. Jesus sees them. He comes to meet their need. The question for us is, who do you see? Who do you see around you? Do you choose to see? Jesus did. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, he saw them. What did he do? What did Jesus do? Well, taking a good look at them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Jesus didn't do anything other than tell them to go to the priests. Well, that's weird. Like, why come all that way just to tell them to go to the priest? Well, because it was only the priest that could actually integrate them back into community. These are 10 men who haven't seen their wives, haven't seen their kids, can't do their job, can't be a part of the community because they have to live outside of town. And Jesus says, go to the priest. Well, what happens next? They do. They do exactly what Jesus tells them. They went. And while still on their way, this is important, still on their way, Jesus didn't heal them in his presence. As they're doing what he asked them to do, they became clean. They're walking there. Wow, the spots are gone. You know, I feel stronger. I feel better. I'm, I'm healed. And one of the 10... When he realized that he was healed, he turns around, came back, and he shouted his gratitude. He said, thank you, glorifying God. And he kneeled at Jesus' feet. Not a good translation. He didn't kneel at Jesus' feet. He laid out. He prostrated himself face down in the dirt, hands on Jesus' feet. That's the reality of what he did. Saying, thank you. You must be God. You must be awesome. You healed me. Nobody else could have done that. He couldn't thank him enough, the scripture says. And he was a what? Huh. That's weird. Samaritans hate Jews as much as Jews hated Samaritans. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with each other. This guy was way outside. Now, this is a weird story, isn't it? Because how many are healed? How many? You're right. Ten. Well, then how many return to thank Jesus? One. Now, this is where it gets real uncomfortable, friends. You're a church person in church. What does that make you? An insider. Who were the nine who did not say thank you? The insiders. I hope you'll have me back next week. This is a very difficult passage. Because the only person that comes back is the Muslim that lives in Mexico. That's who came back. I mean, if we're, if we're going to make it apples to apples, that, that's who it is. Not a Jew, not from the right area, not from the right nation. That's who comes back. So Jesus asked three questions. Jesus is great with questions. And I don't know if he's just messing with them, whether he's trying to be funny or what we're supposed to hear from this. But Jesus asked three questions, and he never asked questions just because. He says, we're not, how many? Ten healed? Yeah, think, think there were. Now, who he's talking to? I don't know. Maybe he's talking to the Samaritan. He's like, get up, get up, get up. So, so these are the questions Jesus asked. We're not ten healed. Where are the nine? That's the next question, isn't it? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this? Say it with me. Outsider. Everybody else should have known what to do. So where are the nine, Jesus says. 
Where are they? Where are they? You all know where they are. They're at the soccer field. Where all good Edmund people are. They just went back to their life. Right? That's, that's where they are. I mean, and, and, and you can almost hear them say it. We did exactly what Jesus said. They said, go to the priest, and we did. And the priest said we were clean. And he said, we get to go see our wives. We get to go see our kids. We get to go back to work. We get to go to the soccer field. We get to be at the baseball field. We get to do everything that we do, that we used to do. So that's what we're doing. Right? You can almost hear them. Now, here, here's, here's, oh, this is so painful. Because it's the religious people who knew the law, who knew what they were supposed to do, that said this. We did exactly what Jesus told us to do. When they knew in their heart, They did exactly the opposite of what they should do if they loved him. And if we're not careful, we will use the Bible not to draw ourselves closer to Jesus, but to give ourselves a weapon to do what we want to do and put religious language on it, which is exactly what they did. And only the one who wasn't trapped by uh, all their other friends. And you could also do it like this. The nine are walking. They're like, hey, we're clean. You know that prayer we prayed about 30 minutes ago? Pretty sure that's the one that did it. We're such good prayers. Or they're walking and they're, they're singing some songs. They go, did you hear that harmony a few minutes ago? I'm pretty sure that's what did it. When they heard that harmony, the angels just glorified God and made us clean. Because it's really about us now. See, there's this trick, isn't there? That if we don't go and say thank you to God before long, we'll take the credit. Right? Anybody graduate college? It's because you worked hard. Probably had nothing to do with your teachers or tutors or grandparents that paid for it. Or taxpayers that paid for it. And you all have master's degrees? Some of you have PhDs. But I'm sure it was all you. No one else probably had anything to do with that. So Jesus asked the question, where are the nine? Where are my people? Because the Samaritan wasn't his people. His own people dissed him. Really, the outsider, that's what Jesus says. Really, this guy, he's the only one. So what does Jesus say? He says to this guy, the Samaritan, get up, get up, get up. You're making me nervous. Come on. You know, I'm uncomfortable here. Get up. Come on. On your way. Your faith has healed you and what? Saved you. This is not to be missed, friends. The Greek word here is sozo, which can be used for healing and salvation. It can be used interchangeably. But notice, only the Samaritan is saved in the story, not the other nine. Not saved. Really. Salvation comes in a relationship with Jesus. And this is where it gets really hard for us. Because all ten got what they wanted, didn't they? They all wanted healing. They all got healing. But only one, only the thankful one, received more than he ever dreamed of asking for. He had a face-to-face conversation with the risen Lord. He wasn't dead and raised yet, but he will be. This is God himself. Sun, moon, and stars, Jupiter, Saturn, all of that. He's having a relationship with Almighty God. The other nine do not. They got what they wanted. They wanted to go back to their old life. They got it. They got it. And you can say, yeah, 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 but I mean, that's not me. That's not, I don't have to worry about that. I think it can happen to anyone. I think we can all fall in this trap if we're not careful. Anybody know who this is? Andy, you don't get to play. Anybody else know who this is? This is the smartest man on the planet, proven by IQ. Some, some scholars believe that he has an IQ between 190 and 210. Smartest guy on the planet. His name is Chris Langan. Chris Langan. But you've never heard of him, probably. I had not until I had a speaker tell me about him. Uh, he's written up uh, in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. There's a whole like, chapter uh, around this guy. Amazing guy. Super, super smart. Looks like somebody ate his ding-dongs, though. So sad. Mm-hmm. Super smart, though. Now, this is what he's working on. 
He's now working on what he calls a true theory of everything. Everything. And, and it's basically a cross between John Archibald Wheeler's participatory universe and Stephen Hawking's imaginary time theory of cosmology. Y'all are tracking with this, right? Of course not. Right? Way beyond us. This guy, though, never published because he doesn't know how to do that. All this wisdom, all this incredible knowledge, nobody's reading it. Maybe a super-duper grad school, somebody can go, you know, ferret out the unpublished stuff. But most of us, no recognition of the guy. Because he, he wasn't willing to do the talk show circuits to get him on the New York Times bestseller list. He's not going to work with a publisher. He's not going to do the stuff that actually gets you down that road. And Malcolm Gladwell, after working with the smartest man in the world, as proven by multiple IQ tests around the world, came to this. He says, no one, friends, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, and not even geniuses, not even Chris Langan, ever makes it what? Alone. No one. No one. No one. And this is really tough in Oklahoma, particularly western Oklahoma, because we like the Marlboro Man, where we're going to get on our horse and die of cancer. Just terrible stuff. The terrible metaphors that we lift up to people, right? Or this one. I want you to imagine me now laying on the ground on my back, and I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Really? No, I'm not, and neither are you. It's a terrible metaphor. It's dumb. Now, maybe some contortionist can do it. But for most of us, nobody pulls himself up by the bootstraps. It's dumb. Y'all ever, who wears boots, right? You sit on a chair, and the chair helps you, and you put your boots on. Or if you're me, you lean up against the desk, you know, and you try to get them on. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do you, has it, I, can anybody do it? I mean, I want to see it. I mean, I'll let you come up if you can do it. No, you can't do it. So because that's true, and the road to joy is thankfulness, thank someone today who's helped you. Maybe it's a school teacher that helped you. Maybe it's a grandma. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's a friend. But thank someone. And do it today, friends. Because if you don't do it today, you're likely not to do it at all. Y'all remember high school graduation thank you notes? Yeah, you still got some of them to write. (laughs) Right? Right? You don't do it then. You feel guilty about it for 50 years. I think they're written, maybe. Right? But friends, thank someone today who's helped you. That's where joy comes from. Recognize that everything we have is a gift. And you know, if we, if we take a moment and focus on the cross, we're only here today because someone did something for you that you could never repay. We might want to say thank you. Thank somebody today. Amen? Amen.